Well, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And while you are turning there, I want to ask you a question. Do you remember where you were on January 17th, 1994? <laughs> Donna, you remember? Oh, yeah. Here, maybe I'll give you a hint. Do you remember where you were that day at 4.30 in the morning? Does that help? I remember I was asleep, as one should be at 4.30. There was a 6.7 earthquake epicenter of Northridge. Lasted almost 20 seconds, felt as far away as Las Vegas, 220 miles away. There were two 6.0 aftershocks that followed, one the first minute right after the initial earthquake and one 11 hours after the earthquake. 60 people died. More than 9,000 were injured. And an estimated 13 to 50 billion dollars in property damage, closer to 100 million or 100 billion today, given inflation, happened in and around Northridge. It's one of the most uh, costly disasters in U.S. history. I remember waking up and thinking, "What is this? What's going on?" And my parents said, "You need to come with us." And I remember we walked out to. Our kitchen, all the lights were off, right? Power's down. So we walked through our kitchen and we made it outside. And, and then I remember we went back in later that day when we could see everything. And in the kitchen, all of the, the cupboards had opened up and all of the glass had fallen and just shattered everywhere. And it was just absolutely God's providence alone that enabled us all to walk through the kitchen without cutting our feet on the glass. Some people slept through the earthquake. Anybody that you know sleep through it? Some people actually slept through it. My kids have experienced lesser earthquakes. They've experienced little ones that have made them uneasy. Uh, you, you don't know when they're going to happen. When they do happen, you don't know what's going to happen while they're happening. Weather around us and natural events can remind us and teach us and show us of the grandeur of God. We just sang it, right? We just sang about the glory of God in creation. Even just this last week with the hail, right? We saw that all over Instagram and Facebook. Of just when natural occurrences uh, happen that are just super fun and enjoyable to see, we, we chronicle those things. We love those things. So here's my question. What is it going to be like in the last days when untold cosmic disturbances happen? Well, we're going to read this morning... These are events that we've never experienced, or earthquakes that are greater than anything we've ever experienced. What will these realities be like in the last days? And what should they teach us about this day? That's my question this morning. So let's dive into the text, Revelation chapter 6. Let's read it, and we will pray together and ask God's blessing on our time. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. John writes, Then... I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig, casts, a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then 
the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Father, we come before you this morning and as we read this text, we are reminded of our inadequacy as we approach your grandeur. We, we sang about it this morning. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. You are great and greatly to be praised. We do not understand how great you truly are. And there are so many things in this life. There are so many things even in this moment here right now this morning that would want to distract us from seeing the glory of God. And Father, I pray that you in your kindness and your grace would enable your Holy Spirit to empower us to be undistracted in our time this morning. That we would stare at Christ, that we would stare at this scene, that we would take it all in. And that we would understand as we do, as we see it, as we take it all in, we would understand what this means for us today. And it has massive implications for how we live our lives right now. So Father, be pleased to work in our church this morning. Conform us into the image of Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our sacrificial lamb who is raised from the dead. Amen. Well, there are two main scenes here clearly in this section of scripture. Uh, we're going to stare first at creation, and then we're going to stare at the population of humanity. There's just two main aspects of what's happening, and I want to go through these rather quickly and then ask the implication question, the so what question based off of what we are reading. So number one, just to, by way of an outline, number one for this morning, all of nature is trembling. All of nature is trembling. This is verses 12 through 14. All of creation, all of nature is trembling. Verse 12, I looked, John is still seeing these seals being broken. We are coming to the sixth seal now, and, and Jesus is holding the scroll. He breaks the sixth seal, and when he does, there's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes like blood. The stars fall from the sky. The sky is split apart like a scroll, and every mountain and island is thrown away, moved out of their places. Now, number one, this is all the work of Jesus. This is all the work of the Lamb. He's the one opening this scroll. He's the one sovereign over every aspect of creation. He is the one who's doing these things. He is enacting judgment on the world. Number two, we need to clarify what is actually taking place in these cosmic events, these cosmic disturbances, as, as many people have called them. Some people take these cosmic disturbances as symbolic. And there's a number of reasons why. There's a number of ways that they would see them as symbolism for uh, political powers being shaken and things like that. I, I don't think that's the case. A couple of reasons why I don't think that these are just purely symbols for other realities. Number one, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse describes these exact events as actually literally happening. 
So he does not use them symbolically. Also, it appears that nothing short of such devastation is going to convince humanity that this is God judging them. Right? It is only when we get to here that people are going to say, this is God's judgment. So I, I don't think that these are symbols. Now, that being said, we need to interpret this accurately and correctly. While we take them literally, we also have to take them as uh, a semi-poetic language because, again, John is seeing things that he doesn't know how to fully describe, so he's describing them as best he can. A great earthquake, that one's easy. That's exactly what it is. You guys actually know the two Greek words for great earthquake. Great is megas, just mega. Earthquake is seismos, where we get the word seismic activity. So this is a uh, megas seismos. It's a seismos megas. That's what it is in, in the Greek. So that's just exactly what it is, a great upheaval of, upheaval of the world, a great earthquake. But there's going to be things in here like stars falling from the sky to earth. This is where I would just encourage, I think there's semi-poetic understanding of this. Uh, when we get to the bold judgments, we're going to see these things actually happening, destroying the earth. Here, if True stars, literal, legitimate stars out there fell to the earth. Just one would overpower it and crush it, right? Just one star falling to the earth, uh, not even getting close to the earth, not, not even touching the earth, just getting close to it would burn it up. So my guess is that this is probably a description of meteors, right? This is probably a description of something that's burning that looks like a star falling to, to the earth. It's probably a meteor that's crashing, meteors that are crashing down. Also, just when he says every mountain and every island moved out of their places, if it were truly every mountain moved out of its place and toppled over, then there would be no mountains for these people to hide in, and it says that these people hide in mountains. So there's a, there's a way that John is describing what he's seen as absolutely terrifying, and he kind of doesn't even have full language for it. And we'll talk about the sky being split. Let's just go through each of these. Great earthquake, I already said seismos, mega, sun becomes... Black. He describes it as it being like sackcloth, made from usually made from black uh, goat's hair. So it's coarse and it's it's dark and it's it's overshadowed. It's overpowered. So normally giving its light and it's totally overpowered. The moon is becoming like blood. Some say it's an eclipse. I, I, I don't know if it's an eclipse. I, I would say it's probably something more drastic than that, but we don't know. But we do know that all of these events are prophesied in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7, God says, When I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. Uh, Joel 3, verse 15, The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will lose their brightness on that last day. Stars are going to fall from the sky. I think that's meteors. It's very interesting. At the cross, the moon and the stars and the sun wept and here at the end of time, they're revolting. They're not just being sad over the death of Christ. They're revolting, and they're trying to flee away from the presence of, of the Lamb, as we're going to see later on in Revelation. The sky is split, verse 14. This is straight from Isaiah 34, verse 4. All of the host of heaven will wear away. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All of their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from a fig tree. So the sky is going to be separated and split open like a, a rolled up newspaper. And in Isaiah 34, it speaks clearly of this being God's judgment on the earth. The example that I think John is, is, is speaking of, of this being rolled up like a scroll, if you think of somebody 
unrolling a scroll and then God just kind of punching through the middle of it, those two sides would qu quickly roll back up, right? I think that's the picture here that John is giving us. Right? God is just rending the skies. And then every mountain and every island is moved. Again, this is just uh, from the prophecies of the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 32, Amos 8, Joel 2, Zephaniah 1. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. And if you take these two as separate, mountains being moved and islands being moved, then John has just given us seven different aspects of creation, right? Great earthquake, sun becoming like blood, whole moon, or sun becoming black, whole moon becoming like blood, stars falling, sky splitting, mountains moving, islands moving. Seven aspects of creation, the totality of creation. And it's actually very interesting because if you go back to Genesis 1 and you see the created order, how God made the sun, moon, and stars, they're mentioned in that order here in Revelation 6, right? The, the sun being moved, the moon being changed, the stars falling. It's like the decreation account, right? Creation account in Genesis 1, God making these things, and now he's just going backwards and unraveling and decreating these things, uncreating these things. So first, we see all of nature trembling, and the question is, how is the world going to respond? And that's point number two this morning, all of the nations are terrified. All of the nations are terrified. So number one, all of nature is trembling. Number two, all of the nations are terrified. This is verses 15 through 17. Verses 15 through 17. And again, every single category of humanity is listed here. You have the kings of the earth. That's the highest rulers. You have the great men. Those are high-ranking officials in the king's court. You have commanders, which is a word for uh, a Roman centurion, an officer who would command other men. Uh, you have the rich, you have the strong, you have the slave, which would be the lowest portion of society. And actually, the free man is still part of the lowest part of society. Uh, they're, they're free, but they're still under the command of these other people, the high you know, kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders. You have seven categories of people, which again, I, I believe, from the most powerful and highest ranking people to the lowest people, every single individual in the world, seven categories representing the totality of everyone. And what do they do? Middle of verse 15. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They hid themselves. Again, remember in Genesis 1, God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Here, he's decreating. He's uncreating the sun, moon, and the stars. Remember in Genesis 3, what happened when Adam and Eve fell into sin? What was their immediate response? They hid from the presence of God. Here, too, they are hiding from the presence of God. We talked about it before, that Revelation is the bookend to Genesis. Ultimately, there's going to be a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth, a new tree of life. And I think that John has seen all of these things take place, and he sees the similarities, the bookends of what's happening. They're hiding and then they say something that is so powerful. They say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. Fall on us. Uh, the tense in Greek, the, the, the grammar here, it's fall on us now. Please make this happen now. Not a second to spare. Make it happen now. And what are they asking? If rocks, if boulders, if mountains fall on you, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. They dread something worse than death. 
Death would be better to them right now than something else. There's something greater than death that they dread. And what is it? Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. I think that's the father and the son together. What they are doing is a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Or it's actually verse 10 and verse 19. The middle describes it. But listen to what Isaiah chapter 2 says. Verse 10, enter the rocks and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. And then verse 19, men will go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. This is just... Uh, remember we talked about the seals are coming and the seals have been prophesied beforehand. We know that they are going to happen. This is all Old Testament language. So what they're doing is quoted for us. It's uh, described in Isaiah chapter 2. And what they are saying is a direct quotation from Hosea chapter 10 verse 8. What they're doing is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. What they're saying is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 10 verse 8. Also the high places of Aven, the sin of Israel will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars, and then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. This is not a surprise to God. This is exactly how God described it happening thousands of years ago. And it's happening exactly that way. So their impulse here, as they see the presence of the Father on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb being poured out, they say it's better to die than to remain here and keep facing this wrath. Notice they say it's the wrath of the lamb. What a powerful paradox. This is a little baby lamb. And it's a lamb who's been slain, right? It has blood all over its neck. And yet they're terrified of it because it's a lion-like lamb. And they say, verse 17, the great day of their wrath. That's the one who sits on the throne, the Father and the Lamb. So the Father and the Son are involved, and they recognize it. It's their wrath. Notice verse 17, the great day of their wrath has come, has come. This is a, in Greek, this is in a tense that means it's here now, but it's been happening, and we didn't see it. We didn't recognize it something in Greek called the aorist indicative. There's previous arrival of wrath. This isn't something that's taking place for the very first time right now. Has come. I, I want to show you, actually, turn to Revelation chapter 11. The exact same Greek word is used in Revelation chapter 11. This has come word. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, John says, the nations were enraged and your wrath came. It's the same Greek word, has come or came. Came is clearly past tense, right? It'd be like us saying this morning, right? I woke up this morning and, and I looked outside and it looked like it had rained. I don't know if it did, but let's say it did. I could say the rains came last night, right? Sounds like I'm from some old English movie, but if I said the rains came last night, what am I meaning? I'm meaning they began last night and their effects are seen today. That's exactly how this Greek word is defined. Words have meaning, right? That's exactly how this Greek word is defined. So verse 17, here's what they're saying. The great day of the wrath has already been here, and we've been denying it. We've been denying it. This is what they're saying. They're recognizing that everything that they've been experiencing in the very beginning 
of this seven-year period was from the hand of God. And that's no surprise to us because we see Jesus is the one opening these seals. So it is all from the hand of God. The death of the you know, 25% of the population, worldwide famine, global warfare. People were saying, man, things are getting weird. People are dying. What's going on? And the powers that be are saying, no big deal. We'll get over this. It's totally fine. And now everybody collectively is saying, it wasn't totally fine. Now we're looking back and we're seeing clearly that was the hand of God and we missed it this whole time. The rapid sequence of these events was seen by all, but attempted to be explained away. It was just a bad couple of years, right? It's just been a bad couple of years. But now they realize this is God's judgment and it has been from the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. By the way, when they say the great day, verse 17, of their wrath has come, that's Old Testament language as well. Straight from Joel chapter 2, verse 11, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. This is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a sermon unto itself. But the day of the Lord is a massive, massive day that's given to us in the Old Testament. I want, I want to just turn to one place. Go to Isaiah really quickly. Isaiah chapter 13. I think this will help us to understand a little bit about the day of the Lord. And I want to describe it briefly. Again, maybe... Maybe one day we'll do a sermon unto itself with the day of the Lord. It's all over the Bible. Again, Joel 2, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 19, uh, Isaiah 13, rather, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 32, Hosea 10, a lot of Zephaniah, a lot of Zechariah. I mean, it's all over the place. But here in Isaiah 13, start in verse 6. Wail, because the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. It's interesting because that, I believe, is an allusion that uh, Jesus is using in Matthew 24. Remember, he said those first four seals are the beginnings of birth pangs. I think he's getting that language from here, a description of the day of the Lord, because it's all a part of the day of the Lord. They will look at one another, middle of verse 8, in, in an astonishment. What is going on? What's taking place? Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Listen to this. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. This is exactly what's happening in Revelation 6. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal men scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. This is, again, exactly what we're seeing in seal six. And the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger, in the day of the, of the Lord. The day of the Lord, from the broadest perspective biblically, is a time when God's wrath puts extended pressure on all of his enemies. And at the outset, just like Jesus describes in Matthew 24, it's going to be like birth pains for a woman, where you feel it growing stronger. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Those are the events of seal one through four. The agony will grow and grow and grow and grow. And finally, it will culminate in God's judgment on those who dwell on the earth during the battle of Armageddon. So the day of the Lord covers... From the beginning of breaking of seal number one, the, the beginning of the, the time of Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year period of time, begins there, 
and it's going to go all the way through till Armageddon. But it doesn't stop there. Following Jesus' personal intervention in the battle of Armageddon, his second coming, will come an extended time of blessing and prosperity for those who remain in Revelation 20 through the millennial kingdom, as we're going to get to when we get to Revelation 20. This is clear in the Old Testament, that the day of the Lord is not just a period of judgment, it's also a period of blessing. I can just give you a couple of verses to write down. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 23 through 25. Chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. Joel 3, verse 18. And Zechariah 14, verses 6 through 11. Uh, I don't expect you to have written all that down. You can get it on the video later. But the Old Testament makes it very clear that the blessing of God for Israel is also a part of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, therefore, in summary, will include the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-period time frame that we've been talking about, the time of Jesus' personal return, the reign of Christ during the millennial kingdom, all the way till the very end of that time, when the new heavens, the new earth, the eternal state will be brought in. Some people try to limit the day of the earth to a specific moment. Some people even say the day of the Lord is a day. It's a literal 24-hour day that's not taking into account what the Bible says about the day of the Lord. It's not just one certain event. It's not just one certain day. In fact, again, this is another sermon for another time, but the day of the Lord seems to have broad definitions and narrow definitions. In the Old Testament, it gives us uh, different um, names and labels for these things. The time of Jacob's distress, the day of trouble, the day of great, dis uh, great tribulation. Um, all of these different aspects describe this seven-year period. So the world looks on, back in Revelation 6, and they see everything that's happening. And they go, this, this is the great day. We're in it. This is the day of the Lord. They know it. It's all Old Testament language that they're very, very well aware of because I believe that uh, God is working in Israel at this point, and we'll talk about that later as we get closer in chapter 7. So this passage reveals so much. We've got nature trembling. We've got the nations are terrified. So what? You read Revelation chapter 6 for your devotions tomorrow morning, and you think, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> what am I supposed to get out of this? There are so many things we can look at, right? So many different truths. Number one, the trustworthiness of God, right? That's so clear and obvious. He promised these things would happen, and they're happening. Remember I said, Revelation is only as fuzzy to you as your understanding of the Old Testament is fuzzy. If you understand the Old Testament, Revelation makes sense. Yes, there's some weird things in it for sure, but it makes sense because it's all been prophesied before. Number two, we could look at the sovereignty of God over creation. He's the one making these things happen. He's the one who owns and controls every molecule of the sun, and he makes it shine or not shine. But I think the greatest emphasis that's placed on this text, that's, that's given to us this morning from this text, is on those who dwell on the earth. Remember last week we talked about those who dwell on the earth. It's a category for those who are opposed to God, sinful humanity opposed to God and to his people. And I think that this text teaches us three absolutely astounding realities about sinful humanity. Three absolutely astounding realities about sinful humanity. Number one, sinful humanity does not see the hand of God. Sinful humanity does not see the hand of God. They don't want to see the hand of God. 
They have been living through seal one, two, three, four, and then five is back up in heaven with the martyrs praying for these things to ultimately culminate in the final return of Christ. But sinful humanity is trying to explain it away. They don't even understand it. They don't see it until God says, look, this is what it is. It's only until it's obvious something's out of place here, right? We don't see these things happening every day. It's only then that they go, oh, now we get it. Everything we've been experiencing, okay, now it makes sense. Let me show you one passage. Go to Daniel chapter 12. Remember Daniel, we talked about incredibly important book when we're talking about end times theology. The way we would describe that in theology, eschatology, the, the study of the end times. In Daniel chapter 12, as we get to the very end of this, when Daniel's saying, okay, when is all this going to take place? And we're given some time frames, but Michael ultimately, the, the archangel says to him, it's not for you to know right now, but it will happen just as God has said. And in Daniel 12, verse 9, he says this, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time, which is amazing that we get to read them. And then he says in verse 10, Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. They don't get it. They're not going to understand what's happening. But those who have insight will. The, the wicked aren't going to understand this. They know what the day of the Lord prophecies look like. They know this has to be something bigger than what we're saying it is. But they don't want to believe it. I think this is a reality about sinful humanity. Sinful humanity does not see the hand of God. Where you and I see the hand of God in everything that's happening, sinful humanity explains it away from evolution to other you know, scientific possibilities and hypotheses. It's just, it's not God. They want to take God out of it. Reality number two. Sinful humanity fears the wrath of God. Sinful humanity fears the wrath of God. So they don't want to see the hand of God. And yet they know he's there, right? Romans chapter one, they're without excuse. They see creation, they know he's there. Romans chapter two, they have the conscience that is written on their hearts, the law written on their hearts. Paul's whole argument is, if you are a Jew, you know the law, and then you look at the Gentiles and you expect them, who are not under the law, to be living as a law unto themselves, completely different, and yet they look so similar to the way that we live. The, the, the law, the Torah over Jews says murder's wrong. And guess what? Gentiles are saying the same thing. The, the, the law says be faithful to your wife. And guess what? The Gentiles are primarily saying the same thing. How is that possible? And Paul's argument for that is God has written his law on their hearts and their conscience is working back and forth. So everybody knows that they've done something that's wrong. Everybody feels guilty about something at some point. Everybody knows that. They know that they're without excuse. They, they reject that. They don't want to believe it. They, they stiff arm it. But they know it. And that's why they know, in Revelation chapter 6, it would be better to die, and they think just cease to exist, than to experience God's wrath right now. They fear. This is sinful humanity that's not going to get saved, and they fear God's wrath. They're living out what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think this passage in Revelation 6 is here to awaken your soul if you still remain in defiance against God. It's also here to awaken your soul 
if you are a nominal Christian who's in the midst of a moral slumber, who just thinks, look, if I just say I'm a Christian, that's all that I need. This is the assured, guaranteed future of all people that God's wrath will be poured out on sin. Sin will be punished. Sin will not go unpunished. By the way, this is the assured end of all morally good people who refuse to trust in Jesus' goodness. You can be a morally good person, a nice person, good by the standard of the world. So many people think, I'm a good person. As you show them the law that's written on their heart, you have an advocate in their soul. And as you go after that advocate and you show them and you speak to their their guilt, you speak to their conscience. I think that usually they're able to see they've broken God's law. And, and you can ask them, if God were to judge you based on his law and you breaking his law, would you be innocent or guilty on that last day, even though you're a very nice person or a very good person? We are all imperfect, sin, sinful people. And God's wrath abides currently as John 3 tells us, on those who do not accept Jesus Christ. This is why so much of the early Christian church spoke in the language of flee from the wrath to come. That was their gospel presentation. I remember uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right? That's how the guy got saved. That's how Christian got saved in that book. He heard, he read, flee from the wrath to come. There is wrath coming. Now, a lot of people don't like that about God. They don't think that God and anger can coexist. They see them as irreconcilable enemies. God and anger can't work together. Well, Scripture reveals that God and anger not only coexist, they cooperate together. And normal human intuition agrees with that, our, our normal experience. We've said this before. If you tell me that you love Jewish people, and then I ask you what you think about the Holocaust, and you say, no big deal, you can't tell me that you love Jewish people. If you say you love children and you're totally fine with pedophilia, you can't tell me that you love children. So true love has inside of it genuine hatred for that which offends what you love. And if you don't have genuine hatred, then you don't have genuine love. That's why God absolutely hates sin. Why? Because sin separates us from him. He loves us. He loves holiness. Sin is the exact opposite of holiness, and sin separates us from him. What he loves the most is destroyed by sin. So of course he's going to hate sin, and it must be punished. Righteous wrath is an eternal perfection within the very being of God himself. So my friends, I just I plead with you. Is it wise to refuse Jesus Christ for one more day? Is it wise for you to refuse him for one more day? And have you been saved from this wrath? It's coming. Have you been saved from it? So number one, sinful man does not see the hand of God. Number two, sinful man fears the wrath of God. And finally, number three, sinful man does not want to repent. Sinful man, number three, does not want to repent. This is my question. When we get to the end of chapter 6, they say to the mountains and to the rocks, 
cover us, kill us, and hide us because we don't want the wrath of God to fall on us. Now, my question when I read that text is why are they talking to rocks and not to God, right? Why are they talking to rocks and not to God? They even know this is God doing this. They know the one who's doing these things. And instead of saying, let's ask God to relent. Let's see if there's a way that we can have a right relationship. Let's see if there's a way that this can end. Instead of doing that, they say, we'd rather die. These people recognize their guilt. They recognize their shame. They recognize that it's God judging them, and yet they don't repent. So my question as I come to the end of chapter 6, is why do they not cry out for mercy? Why are they not pleading with the Lamb? Forgive us. Relent. And the simple answer and the biblical answer is they don't want to. They don't want to. That's the bottom line. They have no desire to. They know they could, but they don't have any desire to. When will we come to truly believe and realize that the effects of the fall and of our sin has damaged us this much that even when we feel guilt and we see God's judgment and we know there's a way to be saved, we still reject him? These are not people in Revelation 6 who want to get into the kingdom of God but can't. They simply don't want in. It's an issue of desire. They have knowledge, but they have zero desire to follow God. They have zero desire to be with him. Turn to 2 Thessalonians really quickly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a huge section on the Antichrist. We'll talk about this uh, as we get closer to the end in Revelation. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Starting in verse 8, the lawless one, this is the Antichrist, will be revealed. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and with signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Now, okay, Paul, people are perishing. Why? Because they did not receive what? The love of the truth so as to be saved. He does not say they didn't receive the truth. Oh, they know the truth. They've received the truth. This is the wrath of the Lamb. But they don't love it. They, don't, they have no love for him. They don't receive love for Christ. Going on, verse 11. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. That's so helpful. What does it mean to not believe the truth? Is it not agree with the facts? Maybe, but not at the heart of it. Paul is mirroring these two aspects, right? Paul is saying, if we go to clearly taking pleasure in wickedness, we know what the opposite of that is. So not believing the truth, taking pleasure in wickedness. So simply not taking pleasure in, in Christ, in the truth. There's zero desire for the Lord. There's zero love for him. Sinful humanity doesn't want to repent. They know that they can. They know that they should. But they don't want to. 
And so that brings me to the question, do you want to repent? Do you want to repent? Do you want Jesus? We studied it in Psalm 51, right? Cast me not away from your presence. I want you. I want you, God. Do you want to repent? You remember Matthew chapter 5? Uh, we go to it often, even in sharing the gospel about, you know, if you, uh, have you committed adultery? Are you an adulterer at heart, right? Uh, the Bible says, Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you look at somebody with lust in your heart for them, it's as if you've committed adultery. You've already done that in your heart. So he's going to go on to say, one of the ways you combat that is radical amputation. You guys remember the passage, right? If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it far from you. Deal seriously with your sin. But you remember, where did he say the sin came from? If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's not hand. So you can cut your hand off, but you still have a heart problem. So let's use Jesus' own analogy. If the heart is the problem, which it is, and that's where all of our sin flows from, then what do we need to do? We need to cut that out and get a new one. That's the exact definition of what regeneration is, right? We are born again. We have a new heart that's given to us and an old one taken out. But you and I can't take out our hearts. We don't even know where our souls are. We can't take out our, our fleshly heart that is so filled with sin. It's a rock, the Bible says in the Old Testament. It's just a stone. We need a new heart given to us by God himself. And so if you're here this morning and you would say, I see my guilt, I see my sin, I see my shame, and I want to repent. Then it starts with you just simply pleading with God, give me a new heart. My heart is filled with sin and loves sin and doesn't love you. Give me a new heart. By the way, when God does that, and the gospel transforms you, everything that we said was true about sinful humanity is flipped on its head for you as a believer. Right? Sinful humanity, they don't see the hand of God. They don't want to see it, and they don't. What do we have? We see the hand of God, right? Believers have had their eyes open. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the gospel is veiled to non-believers, but that veil is pulled back for believers, right? We can see. God has said, let light shine into darkness and has given an understanding so that we see and savor Jesus Christ. Sinful humanity fears the wrath of God. What do you and I do with the wrath of God? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have zero fear of the wrath of God. It's gone. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. We're not destined for the wrath of God. God's going to save us from his wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9 says the same thing. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 says the same thing. There's an hour of testing of God's wrath that's coming over the whole world, and we won't be a part of it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 Perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment, John says. And if your punishment has already been paid for on somebody else, then we have zero fear out there. We've had our eyes opened. We don't fear the wrath of God anymore. And finally, sinful humanity doesn't want to repent. It's an issue of desire. We, who are believers, now have a desire for Christ. We love him. Our affections have been changed. Where we used to love sin and hate God, now we hate sin and love God. Not perfectly, but in progress. Turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Paul says something very helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit has given you the gift of regeneration, has given you a new heart, taken out your old heart and given you a new heart, now you say Jesus is Lord. What is Paul saying here? He's not saying that non-believers can't say those words. Uh, a non-believer can say Jesus is Lord. What Paul is saying is a non-believer can't say those words and love them. Right? What does it mean to love those words? Lord, that's master, right? That means you're a slave. So what you're saying is, I love the fact that I have zero autonomy. I love the fact that I have no will, that somebody dictates everything for my life. I love that fact. I love the fact that I'm a slave. Nobody can say they love that unless Jesus is an amazing master and the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see that. Otherwise, you're going to say, he's accursed. Who, who is he that he thinks he can own and control my life? If you say Jesus is Lord and you love it, that's an evidence of God's grace. Because nobody can treasure that reality if God hasn't changed your heart. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. If anyone does not love the Lord, does not believe in him or trust him or agree with the fact that he's real, all those things point you to a decision. Do you love this about him? Do you love him? You know he's real. You know it's true. Do you love him? And if you don't, you will be accursed. And I say this to non-believers who say, wait, so you're telling me I'm going to hell? I'm not going to heaven? Number one, I'm not saying that. God says that. But number two, can I just ask, honestly, isn't that what you want? I mean, in this life, you have a choice. Do you love Jesus or do you love your sin? Heaven is a place where sin doesn't exist. And it's all about Jesus. So if you are living in this life and you hate Jesus and you love your sin, you're going to hate heaven. You're going to hate it because it's all about Jesus, the very thing that you don't like, and the very thing that you love the most, your sin, doesn't exist. So yes, God absolutely allows you to make that decision in this life. And if you choose, eh, I'm not going to follow you, I don't love you, then he ultimately gives you what you've always wanted which is forever apart from him. And you and I both know that is not, it's not going to be something that they're going to enjoy. Brothers and sisters, we have so many people who are out there in the world today that don't know that the wrath of God is coming. They just don't. They'll see it when it comes and they won't repent at that point, but they don't know it's coming. And their only hope of knowing that is you and me going to them to share. Let's, let's tell people about Jesus. Let's tell them there's a way that their guilt can be forgiven. There's a way their sin can be removed. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul tells Timothy, 
that he and everybody along with him who's a believer who loves Christ's appearing. They, they love Jesus. They want him. And they can't wait to be with him. So if you're a believer, you've had your eyes opened, you don't fear the wrath of God anymore, and you love Jesus. You desire him. Where do you fit in these two categories of individuals this morning? You're still a part of sinful humanity that rejects God, not because you don't know he exists, but because you don't want him. I would encourage you not to leave this morning until you talk with somebody and ask them this question, why should I want him? Why is he better than my sin? Is my sin pretty enjoyable? Why is he better? He is. One last passage. We end out chapter 6. Turn to Nahum. Nahum in the Old Testament, chapter 1. At the end of their statement in Revelation chapter 6, those who dwell on the earth cry out, the, the great day of the wrath has, of, of the Lamb has come, uh, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who is able to stand? I, I believe that chapter 7 is going to answer that question, but I think the Old Testament already did. Nahum chapter 1, verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Who can stand before his indignation? The answer is the end of that passage. Only those who take refuge in him. Only those who hide themselves in Christ. Because Christ withstood the wrath of God. He drank that cup of judgment that he said in the garden, if there's another way, please let this cup pass me by. There is no other way for humanity be, to be saved. So he took that cup of judgment. He drank that cup of judgment. He took it all. He paid for it all. He cries out, it is finished. So he, he bore it all for us. And if you would run to him today and find refuge in him, then he will be your stronghold, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Revelation chapter 6 and the reality of what it teaches us about sinful humanity and about ourselves and for those of us who are believers about who we were before you came and opened our eyes, before you came and gave us a taste of how glorious and beautiful you are. And Father, I pray for everyone in this room that they would taste and see that the Lord is good and that they would come to him, that there would be no more wrath to fear because it's all been removed and paid for by Christ and that we would, like Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, we would love your appearing. We would long for it, just like 1 Corinthians 16 says, Maranatha, come quickly, because we love you. Help us to love you even now. Grow in us a greater love for Christ as we sing and respond. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.